0: Alright, so we are going to keep studying uh, fasting tonight. Fasting is fun, uh, not while you're doing it, of course, but fasting can be very fun. Um, As I'm pulling up my sermon here, let's pray, and we'll get started. Jesus, thank you for this night, and um, I praise you, Lord. There's just a few of us here due to the weather and the road conditions, but I praise you that we got here in time, I praise you that we got here safely, and I pray that we get home safely. As we study your word, as we endeavor to learn more about fasting and its purpose and, and why we do it and how to do it, I pray for your Holy Spirit to reveal to us what we need to learn tonight. Um, no matter what I say, Lord, I give you full reins. I, I, I submit to you. I, I As John the Baptist did, I decrease so that you might increase. For Vi, for, for Laura, for Marie, for Dan, and for myself, Lord, bless us tonight with your holy presence, your revelation. Your teaching and your leading. We give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright. So we're going to talk about something kind of controversial tonight. We're going to talk about um demon possession. Demon possession is always a lot of fun to talk about. Um because there's so much that's taught that is unbiblical about demon possession. Um or I've used the, the this poor altar. I use it as my as my uh, uh, example so so often. So imagine it being like two ends of a spectrum. You either have obsessed with demonic possession, demonic forces, so much so that um, a, a Christian's only responsibility is fighting the demonic. and then you go all the way to the other end of the spectrum where there are people who for whatever reason, believe that demons do not exist. Um, there's no need to address them. And both of these are are an error in in the wrong direction. And so what we find biblically with demonic uh, possession, oppression, uh, that there is a very real uh, enemy that we face every day. There's Satan. Satan is a fallen angel. And when he fell, um, he took with him a third of the angels. And these became demons. So that being said, they become our enemies. Now they cannot, uh, as Christians, possess us. Uh, it's the equivalent of trying to have salt water and clean water together. Either the Holy Spirit in control or a demonic force is in control. Um, the good news about demons and possession and oppression is A, um, as real as they are, as scary as they can be, as, as much damage as they can do, they are not like God in, in that they're not omnipotent. Uh, They're not all-knowing. They're not all always present. um, They cannot go someplace where the Lord has forbade them. Um, They are limited. They are finite beings, um, unlike God who is infinite. And so, what does fasting have to do with demon possession? Well, we'll get to there in just a moment. So first, Matthew 6 and 16, sort of been our main text for the last few weeks, um, sort of our, our jumping off point, if you will. Matthew 6 and 16, Jesus says this, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, uh, that their fasting may be seen by others. (sighs) Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so this has kind of been our theme um, jesus has uh come and he's addressed fasting as though we would continue to do so um he spoke to his disciples on one occasion where um there would be a time where the bridegroom would leave and that would be a time for fasting um, but while the bride, bridegroom was with them it was a time for celebration um as christians we are called to fast um but fast unlike the rest of the world. Fast, unlike uh, many of the folks did in the Old Testament, we no longer have a day out of the year where we are commanded to fast like the Jews did with the uh, with the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Fasting is just abstaining from something for a period of time to draw close to the Lord. Paul, in addressing the church, uh, told the church I forget which church it was, but that it would be okay for a man and wife. Uh, to abstain from one another uh, sexually uh, for a time of fasting and for prayer, but not for too long, but, but long enough to, to um, draw closer, draw nearer to the Lord. That would be an okay thing. So we know as Christians we should fast, um, that it's abstaining from something. Generally we're talking about food, but it can be anything. Um, we don't fast like the Pharisees who did it to get attention, so they could be seen as religious or spiritual. And we've learned uh, over the last couple of weeks, and we'll learn again tonight, that fasting is not a trick. It's not something we do to make God do what we want. You know, this is not the proverbial uh, coin that goes in the vending machine to give us what we want. You know, fasting does not uh, impress God, you know, oh, you didn't go with, you didn't eat for 24 hours, and I must do what you say. That's not uh, what fasting is about. Fasting is about us changing and being conformed to the will of God. Uh, Matthew 6 and 9, same discourse in which Jesus is teaching about fasting. He says, pray like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And fasting can help us get over the hump of our will onto the path of God's will. And so uh, two weeks ago we looked at uh, David fasting during a time of distress. Last week we looked at Daniel. And his fasting for separation and sanctification. This week we're going to look at the disciples. Um, and we're not going to look at the disciples as an example because they didn't do it right. We're going to look at what the disciples did not do in order to learn from them. And so turn to Mark chapter 9. And as you're turning there, uh, our first issue we're going to have to deal with is an issue of translation. Um, if you have a good Bible with footnotes at the bi- at the bottom of them, bottom of the pages, um, you you may have come across this at some point or another. I have here the English Standard Version of the Bible. Um, I know in our pews we have the King James Version. Some of you are reading out of the King James Version right now, um, and so we're gonna we're gonna find a difference in our translations. I'm gonna try to actually turn to the Bible rather than just referring to my notes. So chapter nine verse twenty nine, and he said that is Jesus to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now if you if you've read this in another translation than the one I'm reading, it is what this can only come out by prayer and fasting. And so um, most of the time when it comes to translations, pretty much across the board, it's pretty much the same. Um, with your mainline, most common uh, translations—English Standard Version, King James, New King James, uh, New International Version, New American Standard, the New Living Translation—for the most part, they they, they fluctuate uh, by using uh, words that are the same but are different so that they fit our language. But here's one instance where a word is left off, and we have to ask ourselves why. This is actually very important when it comes to Bible study. So. The English Standard Version, the New Living Translation, the New, uh, the New International Version, and the New American Standard uh, Bible all omit fasting. Now, here's what the footnote says for fasting. Some manuscripts add and fasting. What does that mean? Our modern Bible, what we read today in English, is translated from manuscripts that have been saved and preserved and, and discovered over centuries at best we have at this point copies of copies uh, of the original written uh, Bible Um, for the Old Testament the Jews were given the privilege and the responsibility of preserving the Old Testament and then as the New Testament happened you had of course the four gospels, you had uh, the letters that Paul wrote they weren't necessarily um, published like a book they were letters written to folks and then the church continued to pass those around and it became evident that these were more than just letters. They were more than just words. This was the the word of God being expressed. And so at this point where you have uh, men and women who have studied uh, biblical languages for uh, for a really long time, decades of time, they come to uh, an issue like this where multiple manuscripts aren't saying something different, but there's a word that's missing. And so for the translations like mine, the English Standard Version, that simply say cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, here is how they have addressed this. Most, if not – most of the manuscripts um, include fasting, but there are some that that don't. So we're not going to include it in our translation. We'll just have the footnote with King James, New King James, they say, well, enough of them say with fasting, and so we're going to include it. Now, how does this work while maintaining the integrity of the translation? Neither one of these contradict the Word of God by going with the fasting or without the fasting. Also, by adding fasting, the the, the, the translators have only bolstered the teaching and the belief uh, biblically, that prayer and fasting go hand in hand. And so to read this and to not have the fasting there, I believe the lesson to be learned here is exactly the same. Um, and, and whether you read from a translation that omits it or not, um, really will not change your theology. And that's important. If you have a a, a, a translation... That your theology is is based on that, and if you take the translation away, your theology no longer works, you've got a bad translation or you've got a bad interpretation of the Bible. And so um, just an interesting footnote uh, as far as it goes with um, Bible translation, it's a very uh, – it, it's something that men have been doing for centuries to ensure that we as Christians have the very word of God as close as possible as, as our English words can fit uh, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, and the Greek that it was originally written in. So that being said, Mark chapter 9, verse 14, says this, And when they, they came to the disciples, now in our main verse is Jesus says, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. We've got to blow this out. We've got to go a little deeper than just this one verse to pull out uh, the doctrine that God is teaching us. Verse 14 says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, the scribes arguing, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd, uh, saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, "You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again." And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that the most, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered, when he had entered his ha- the house, his disciples asked him privately, "Why could we not cast it out?" And he said to them, Jesus said, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer or prayer and fasting. I'm going to give you a little insight into how I study the Bible. Um, And I'm not saying it's the right or the wrong way. It's just how I best understand the Word of God. Um, Have you ever been given, sent, or, or had delivered a package from somebody? Um, a big package, maybe maybe a, a gift in the mail, or maybe it's something you've inherited. Somebody get, brings you this box. Somebody has passed away. They bring you this box, and it's full of stuff, and it's your duty to unpack it. You've got to open it up, and, and you start to unpack it, and some things are obvious what they are, but then you start you start going through stuff, and all these questions arise. Why is this in here? Why was this given to me and not another person? What use do I have for this? What sentimental, what sentimental value is in this particular thing? Um, why was it at the bottom of the box and not the top? Um, you know, what did they use it for? Uh, what, kind of, uh, what kind of use did they have from it? Um, sometimes we receive gifts like that and we receive things we don't even know what to use, to use it for. It's just something given to us and we've got to determine what that's all about. I kind of approach the Bible in much the same way I look at it as as a gift or a package that God has given me, and it 's my duty my job to to pull it out and figure out what's going on. You know you have the the story here you know if you want to boil it down uh a crowd Jesus has come to this crowd where the disciples are there's scribes there, and there's a father with a demon possessed boy and 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 no 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 joke intended or anything like that, but all hell has broken loose. Things are going crazy. There is no uh, there's no order. Everybody's gathering around Jesus all while this little boy is is being attacked demonically. And so we've got to unpack this. What's going on? Where did Jesus just come from? Verse 14, 14 says, and when they came to the disciples. Well, it's not just Jesus. There's more than Jesus. Uh, for it to be they, it's got to be more than one. So you go back to the beginning of, of Mark chapter 9 and we find out this is the, the – where Jesus goes to the mount of transfiguration this is a pretty epic event in the ministry of Jesus he takes with him only 3 of his disciples peter james and john so the they of verse 14 is four individuals jesus peter james and john now on this mount of transfiguration peter james and john have seen jesus transformed into his glory they've seen him in the presence of elijah and moses and and they saw him great white hair they saw him in, in 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 a way they had never seen him before transfigured uh, basically like transformed but different he was just entirely different than they had known him for the past few years walking with him from this great experience you know it's where peter classically says you know we should build uh, some place of worship for what we've seen we should build tents or tabernacles right here to commemorate what we've just seen um they come back down and they find uh, the disciples fighting with the scribes. Now Jesus fought with the scribes, the Pharisees, pretty much anybody in religious authority because they weren't keen on the Son of God coming to them and and imposing his his way, the only way. They had their way, and they didn't like Jesus coming and messing that up. So he comes down and he finds this crowd and and, and this they're they're arguing, and um, nobody here is right. The scribes are wrong. The disciples are wrong and rather than admitting their uh, insufficiency rather than uh humbling themselves uh rather than checking their pride they start accusing one another well you can't cast it out for this reason oh yeah well you can't do it for that reason and they've got their reasons but but try to put yourself in that moment crowds all around while this this father and and I and I connect with that dad so quickly like if that were my boy and he was there was no medical treatment for him. There was nothing that was helping him. It was otherworldly what this boy was going through. In desperation coming to Jesus, and all you have is Jesus' disciples fighting with the Jewish uh, religious leaders. The, the, the intense frustration and pain and anguish he must have been feeling. It says that he, as soon as he saw Jesus, he ran to Jesus. He needed an answer. He needed help. He didn't need people to argue over the right and wrong of how to help his boy. He just wanted his boy helped. I love verse 19, not because it's a good verse. It's where Jesus says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You know, we always give, we're always given this picture of Jesus, you know, walking with sheep and little kids and, and, uh, you know, long flowing hair and and all this other business and um, never saying anything uh you know, other than than the nice things to us. And there was times where Jesus got deeply frustrated because his disciples um, call them thick, call them uh closed minded, whatever the reason was, they failed to grasp what they should have already known. And so Jesus became frustrated and said things like this. Now, you never see this verse on a t shirt or a Bible book cover. This is one that everybody likes to forget. Oh faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? So the problem is this boy is demonically possessed. There are two rules – or there are two common uh, methods of thinking when it comes to demon possession and illness. This little boy has what looks like a seizure disorder. You know, I've seen people have seizures and, and foam at the mouth and become rigid. Um, I've actually – in working with people with developmental disabilities – I've, I've witnessed people have some very obscure and strange seizures. Uh, the cliché of somebody falling and shaking uh, or convulsing is uh, – is, it's not that it's uncommon, but there are some folks who become violent. There are some folks who – I've been kicked in the stomach while somebody was having a seizure intentionally. They, they intentionally kicked me. I've had uh, – uh, I've come in contact with folks who um, – or, or other individuals that worked with them who they would begin to eat – like crazy, they would. They would just. Something would happen to them neurologically that changed everything about them. Um, and so, the two methods of thought or the two ways of thinking are um, that all sickness is just sickness, or all all sickness is demonic oppression, or depression, or or, or suppression, or possession. And once again, it's an imbalance. We find here that something that on the outside looks like an illness or, or a or neurological disorder is actually caused by a spiritual disorder. Jesus is is confronted by a young child who's been somehow some way, and we can only speculate as to how this boy attained this demon, um, but he's being possessed demonically and so he needs an answer as to how to get this child out. Well is all illness Demonic is some illness demonic or is no illness demonic? I believe that it's in the middle. I believe that we have enough evident evidence biblically that sometimes there is something that goes wrong with us and it's its root is spiritual. But how can we know the difference? you know if you've visited hospitals, if you've worked with people who have been sick, you know that there are times where if there's no d- demonic presence there, no one's being influenced by A demon, but how can you know that? Well, here's our clue from this scripture. In verse 20, it says they brought the boy to him. They brought the boy to Jesus. And when the spirit saw him, when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Now remember, this, this spirit would cause this boy to seize in such a way that he would actually direct him towards fire and water to try to drown him or burn him. How can we know? When when a demonic spirit is confronted by Jesus, they freak out. They no longer uh, are hidden. Go to Luke chapter 4, verse 31. This is where Jesus is teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Verse 31 of of Luke chapter 4 says, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. Okay, so there's our our correlation or our connection with this young boy. And he cried out in a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I always find it interesting that that demons are able to recognize Jesus better than some humans. Uh, Verse 35, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. You know, I like to—I like to. This is my imagination, so don't don't take this as gospel or 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 doctrine or anything like that. But I like to imagine that this guy, this is his, not not his first outburst at the synagogue. Um, if a demon has had some type of access to this man, and people have been meeting at this synagogue to learn about God and and, and the law and the Torah for who knows how long. I like to imagine that maybe just maybe he's done this once or twice before. And that the other people in the synagogue, not knowing it was an unclean spirit, probably thought he was just a jerk. Like, oh, that guy showed up at church again. Like he's gonna say something. The the rabbi's gonna get up. He's gonna tell us about something that Moses did, and he's gonna blurt out something. Because he's just a jerk. But then to find out here on this day that well, wait, wait a minute, there was something it wasn't this guy was impolite or rude or obnoxious. He there was something going on we're not told how this man gained or attained this demon we're not told uh, anything other than once Jesus confronted it it recognized who Jesus was Jesus simply commanded it to go and it was gone and so we see the same thing happen with this young boy who is demon-possessed as well you know I've heard stories and, and and you know it's hard to to armchair quarterback anybody else's experience um, but you hear these accounts of people like for days on end trying to cast out demons and all this other business. And uh, I just never see that happen uh, biblically. I never see any experience where Jesus doesn't simply just command and they go. So I always I always have this, this red flag that comes up when I hear stories or accounts like that. It's not that they aren't necessarily true. They very well could be true. But I see in the Bible, I see God confronting evil spirits and these evil spirits go. And so um, in unpacking this, if if you as a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit of God, indwelt and anointed and all of that, if you come into contact with somebody who's sick and then they begin to lash out at you like this young boy or like this guy in the synagogue, then maybe it's not just a physical ailment, it's a spiritual ailment. It's not every instance, but we can't rule it out either i have found in my experience that most times it's just it's just a result of this fallen world that we're in that this world is broken faulty corrupt and because of that sickness exists and so whether it's a cold or cancer um things happen in this world that will be completely reversed corrected and and made brand new when we meet jesus on the other side amen so so we can Rest, knowing that if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and we are, that if we come in contact with somebody who's sick and it's more than just a physical ailment, that there will be evidences that it is, like with this young boy, like with this guy in the synagogue. If there is not, then odds are they're just sick and we need to pray for them, anoint them with oil, pray for their family, care for them, serve them, and love them. Something that's really bothering me as I look upon the grand landscape of our church, uh, and I say church like the Big C Church of America, is the amount of quarreling that happens. Uh, Churches become rivals. Churches become enemies rather than co-laborers in Christ. We see this sort of happening here. It's not that the scribes and and the disciples were on the same team, but the disciples, instead of trying to serve this young boy and his dad, they start. They take up arms against the scribes, and, and still nobody gets help. I find many times that Satan, um, he's not going to get all of his, all of your attention on him. He's just got to get your attention off Jesus, and that's what he did with these disciples. These men who walked and were in community and and and, and ate with Jesus, and you know, and and slept uh, wherever Jesus decided to lay down for the night, and and uh you know prayed with jesus and and had community with jesus they were completely turned around by these scribes that showed up and whether whether it's a, a demon that was responsible whether satan was just turning them all around doesn't matter they failed at their job and so quarreling there's a time to you know ecclesiastes time for war time for peace all that but as christians we have to be more concerned with serving Than being right. More concerned with serving than having a rivalry with with another person, especially on our own team. You know, there are a lot of men like uh, Bill Mahar. You know, you guys may not know who he is, but he hates Christians. My job is not to be at war with Bill Mahar, my job is to pray for him that he would meet and know Jesus. Not to not to degrade him or to try to one-up him or, or whatever. If my understanding of the Bible is correct, one day he dies, he goes to hell. And, and my snarky remarks or my one-up arguments on him and his thinking is not going to mean anything to him at that point. And so what will do the best good for somebody like him, who is a celebrity and I'll never meet him, that my efforts are best spent praying for him and men like him. um. And so when you see somebody on television who gets airtime because they're deciding to tear down the name of Jesus um you don't coddle them but you don't you don't necessarily throw them under the bus either you pray for them You know a, a an actor an English actor by the name of Stephen Fry um recently has gained a lot of headlines because he, of his remarks uh, of what he would say if he met God and they all you know to paraphrase were why would you allow pain and illness and children to die and all this other business And a lot of Christians want to tear him down for saying that rather than pray for him and and help him to understand who Jesus is and and, and answer those questions themselves. Because he brings up a lot of good questions that we as Christians can address uh, under the umbrella of of evangelism and apologetics. But here's the real problem that we find in this passage of scripture. Disbelief and lack of faith now most uh, wrong teaching will tell you to have faith for the desired outcome to ensure that you get what you want and when you read the new testament and when you read the words pertain to jesus and faith in him it's always faith in christ and who he is and what is possible not what you want jesus said to the to the to the dead all things are possible. Now what Jesus is not saying is that all things will turn out your way. It's also not saying that things will not absolutely turn out your way. It's that all things are possible. From our perspective, when we pray for somebody, we pray knowing that what we ask is possible, but it's also possible that God has another plan. And so we, we pray because we know God can do all things. He, all things are possible. But the, the – the, 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 not the scribes. The scribes here are not the, the enemy or the bad guy of this story. The ones who have really failed are the disciples. The father's faith is called out, and he quickly turns around. He quickly repents, if you will, of his disbelief and admits his disbelief. But the disciples are the one who, in through all of this, they don't know what's happened. Why can't we do this? Because they've cast out demons before. They know what's going on. But somehow they came up short, whether they started believing their own press, you know, were more impressed by what they can do than what Jesus could do, whether they just thought you know, we're going to go rogue and we're going to be disciples who just get things done. For some reason, they weren't getting it done. And Jesus' answer is this only comes out by prayer and fasting. Maybe they were only praying. Maybe, maybe they didn't take this serious enough. They thought that they had all the power to get this done. They did not. Admitting our insufficiencies is not a sign of weakness in the presence of God. In the presence of Jesus, this Father said, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, he he admitted that, Lord, I do it I do have a problem with belief. I do have a problem with faith in you. I do have a problem with faith. And it's not that I'm happy about it, I'm not proud of it. I'm not parading it, I'm not celebrating it, but it's there, Lord, and I need help with it and some folks are afraid to bring their disbelief to Jesus. I can't think of a better person to bring your disbelief to. I can't think of anybody who else anybody else who would want to encourage you in your belief than the Son of God and so this this dad he does uh, you know for whatever reason, whatever has led to this moment where he, he's just at the feet of Jesus. He repents. Repenting is more than just saying, I'm sorry. It's turning around from where you were going. His direction was away from Jesus, and now his direction is to Jesus. So fasting in this instance is less about making God do what you want, which it never is anyways. But it's about increasing your belief it's coupling fasting and prayer together to believe jesus is who he says he is that's what we're called to believe in we're called to believe that jesus is god we're called to believe that he is the son of god that that all things were created through him and for him and by him that that we are uh we are sinners paid for uh, a debt paid for by the the cross of Jesus bearing our sins even though he was sinless. And so as you fast and as you pray, we can echo, if you will, the same request that this father has. I believe, help my unbelief. And in that, you know, if you've got, depending on your version, in my version, you've got the, uh, the semicolons or the, or the, the dot with a little comma. Like that's where we live. I believe, yet there is unbelief in me still. And Jesus, I'm right there in the middle. And I want the belief to be bigger than the unbelief. I want every day for my belief in you to grow and for my unbelief to decrease, for it to die out like a, like a weed in my heart. I want I want whatever, it, whatever nutrients it gets from me to just cease so that it might die out. And fasting has this great ability to, to not just see the miraculous, but to see the, the, the incredible miracle of watching our belief increase. To where we trust Jesus not to do what we want, but to do what he wants. And that takes a greater trust. If we have a God who performs at our whim, there's no trust there. You know, I don't, When I train my dog to do a trick... You know, I have set up methods to make him do what I want him to do. If he wants a treat, he's going to sit, and he does. I've trained my dog, and, and, I, and I, it was one of the only tricks I've ever wanted to teach a dog. I taught him to, to put the treat on his nose and leave it until I tell him he could have it, and then he, he, he flips it and gets it. I love that trick. I put a dog bone on his nose or a little, little nugget of something on his nose, and he'll sit there. And and he'll start salivating, and he wants it so badly, but he's so obedient that that he'll just wait. And as soon as I snap my fingers and say, go get it, he usually flings it across the room. does one of these jobs, and it just goes all the way across the room. But he can occasionally flip it around and get it all at the same time, really quick. It's it's one of the coolest tricks. Um, Out of the three dogs I have, he's the only one, Parker, our our golden retriever, he's the only one I've been able to teach to do that. But see… People treat God like that. I have the treat God. You do what I say. You perform based on my command, and you do what I want. And, and that's not trust. That's not faith. That's being God, and that's being Lord, and that's being Master. That's making God submissive to you, not you submissive to God. And the and, and here's the glorious thing about all this. It's not an either-or situation. Well, then I have to be the dog so that God can be the Master. No. When we make God our God, we become his child. The good news is that we're not like a dog who's, who's submissive in that way. We're like a child who, who comes to our dad, our eternal father, who loves us greatly, who doesn't make us perform based on some whim he has, but he cares for us and nurtures us. And there's times where, where even something as simple and as primal as food can get in the way of that. It can mute or dull or deaden some of the the spiritual sensitivities we might have and so fasting has a great ability to increase that uh ability to to hear the voice of the lord to to feel the move of the holy spirit to to understand or or not just understand but just to be able to lead and and, or, or follow rather the leading of the holy spirit and it reminds us of what he's capable of If you've ever worked with anything powerful, tools, cars, anything that just has an incredible amount of power you can you can get so used to them you forget just how powerful they are, just how dangerous they can be, just how much damage can be be potentially done with this tool, car, whatever um as I was driving out of Flo's Diner tonight, you know, my car did one of those slipping things, you know, as I, I kind of fishtailed as I came out of the driveway. And I was reminded of just how dangerous the roads are right now. That I've got to be a little more careful. i got to be a little more alert, you know, 10 and 2 on the wheels and, and looking all around me and make sure I'm checking my rearview mirrors and all that kind of thing, looking for black ice in the road and all that. You know, with Christ, he can become so common to us. That we forget what he's capable of. And, and we, in our efforts to you know, pray for the will of God, we kind of just settle for a God that we think just isn't even there. And so fasting can reintroduce us to the power of God. It can reintroduce us to what he is capable of. Not guarantee us what we want. Not, not a method or a trick to make God do what we want. But to remind us of, of the great power that he has. And when we get to a place where it's immeasurable, that's the place where we want to be, where we cannot measure what God can do. Where we're, That's the place of awe and wonder and, and, and marveling and, and, and reverence that the, that the Bible calls us to. And so for, for the Christian to pray or to fast like the disciples, it's this idea of increasing our, un, our, our belief opposed to our disbelief, and then ultimately deliverance. This young boy, Jesus goes, he 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 commands his spirit to go. There's no. There, he does it before the crowds get back to him. I love that. I love that Jesus didn't wait for the crowds to gather, then performed. I love the, how he, he did it before they ever got there, so they couldn't see what happened. So they couldn't just be part of the rah-rah session that was going on around Jesus. It wasn't all fanfare. It's the same thing he did when he brought the young girl back to life. When the young girl had died, and he got to the house, and there's people mourning all over the place. I believe it's in Mark. Uh, it's in the beginning of Mark. I don't know which chapter. Young girl has died. Jesus shows up, and the mourners are all there, and the, and they're and they're they're just wailing, cause they're mourning. But once Jesus said, "No, she's not dead. She's just sleeping," they all start cracking up. They all started laughing because they weren't really mourning. They weren't really distraught or distressed. They were just putting on a show. And so when Jesus goes to actually perform that miracle, the Bible says that that he didn't take the whole crowd in there with him. He took Peter, James, and John. That was it. The parents were there. Jesus was there. That was it. She comes back to life. Jesus basically says, make her a sandwich. Give her something to eat probably wasn't a sandwich. But make her something to eat and then he left. The crowds who were just there for show, who were there because of Jesus's uh, you know, first century rock star status, they weren't privy to what Jesus was actually going to do. You know, calling people back from the dead, delivering people from the demonic is not something that Jesus does for attention. I mean, as a Christian, man, It reminds me of how much power he has. It caused me to worship him more. But Jesus doesn't need to do that to impress us. Jesus does that to deliver and to heal and to to redeem and to restore and to give a second or a third or a hundredth chance to somebody. And our God's a God of deliverance. Our God's a God of of delivering us from those things that, quite frankly, they just get a hold of us and, and we don't know how to get them out of our lives. Jesus can deliver us, whether it's, whether it's bad choices, whether it is uh, habits or addictions, or if it's something demonic. And so so tonight's lesson doesn't follow the general teaching on the demonic, but I'm hoping that it's faithful to the Word of God, because that's what I'd rather be. And so um, fasting like the disciples, there, there's no... There's no discipleship fast. You know, there's no abstaining from a certain type of food. It's just simply fasting. It's just simply get so serious about what you're about to do, just drop all things and and go into prayer and fasting over this person, situation, whatever it might be. So that so that a circumstances might change, but B so that we definitely will change. So we're going to stop right there. That's how you that's how you fast like a disciple. Um you do so for the deliverance of others. You do so to serve and to love um, other people. You know, maybe the maybe the disciples were unwilling to fast for some reason. You know, that's just speculation. It could be could be wrong, but the fact that Jesus has to call them out on it, maybe that indicates that they were unwilling to do so. Maybe they were willing to help these people a little bit, but they weren't willing to go all the way for this young boy and his dad. Regardless. Everybody in this story, with the exception of Jesus, has a problem with their belief. And this young young boy and his father, they're delivered. One's delivered from demonic possession. One's delivered from unbelief. And and both of those can be equally devastating in our lives. So we're going to pray.